the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So today's episode of This Must Be The Place is a little bit different. It's actually a four-way conversation between David and myself and the hosts of another planning or another podcast in Melbourne called Planning Exchange. Or do you call it PX? I'm not sure. It's like ASX. Yeah. It's a, a more, I guess, practice-oriented podcast that has a lot of listeners and we thought, well, maybe we'll kind of cross over. And so most of the questions are being directed by Peter and Jess of Planning Exchange. Do you want to say something, David, because we haven't heard from you? Uh, I just want to uh, say um, I'm, I'm here. I want to say I'm back and thank you for holding the fort while um, I've been sort of destroying myself with uh, teaching for a couple of months. I'm sure you'll have tales to tell. In fact, I we'll talk do. a bit about that. I have tales to tell. In yes. the podcast today. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth and David. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. No problems. We're just wondering, could you give us a little bit of a background around the idea of um, this must be the place? I'd be interested to hear what you say, Elizabeth. I'll start (laughs) by um, saying that David and I originally had a community radio show on 3 R over the summer break. So that's the sort of infill programming. Uh, Now for our listeners overseas, Triple R is a community broadcast in uh, Melbourne, and it's a rather large community radio mm. station. It's quite unique in that way. And we did summer fill on this station for a show called The Architects, and we were called The Urbanists. I can't actually remember the impetus behind us doing that, but that was the background to doing the podcast. We did that, I think, two or three years in a row. How did you get into the community radio show? What was the... Well, I think, David, you had been a guest on a few programs. Well, that? I was doing... Uh, look... I have a long, long involvement with Triple R, okay. uh, and like going back to going back thirty something years. So um, I, I've always been f- comfortable with radio, and it was very weirdly. It was um, uh, an individual called Kalia Coulston who does a show called The Grapevine on Triple R, who was a uh, who's a presenter on that show, and you know, really um, fabulous staple of that program, who knew us both, and. I think basically said, knew that we were both interested in doing something, some kind of show on our kind of, for want of a better word, professional interests and suggested to each of us and to someone else at the station that we, you know, there was some kind of, she she was a bit of the, the puppet. The, the node. There. Yeah, yeah mm. she was the node. Yeah, that's what I meant, yes. Well, you definitely got the voice for radio. Uh, and um, <laughs> Thank you. I'd urge all our listeners to stream Triple R because it's one of the, best products coming out of Melbourne. The title of your podcast is This Must Be The Place. Where does that come from? Directly, it is actually a reference to a Talking Heads song, This Must Be The Place, brackets, naive melody. But it's, you know, it's a brainstormed title based on, I guess, I like pop cultural references that have their own meaning. And I've had a few people say that, well, they had no idea what the title meant. Some people think it's a reference to the Batman John Batman saying this is the place, um, for, place a village. for a village. Yeah, right. I hadn't so even thought of that. So it can be read. You know, <laughs> one of the things that I liked, like the urbanists, which I think we probably ultimately weren't very happy with as a title, uh, was, you know, um, partly because it was it was used in a few other places, um, including another radio program. But, um, but also I like the idea of, like, place rather mm-hmm. than urban places. Like, so we can, we can be a little more free in terms of uh, the kind of things that we cover. And I'm... You know, even in the world of planning, I'm I'm very interested in regional planning as well as urban planning. So, I'm happy with the place element of that title. So, when you're not doing podcasting and community radio, you are both obviously within research and teaching at your respective universities. What kind of research are you doing at currently? I'm based here at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University. I should also 
mention that like a lot of us here at RMIT or at the University of Melbourne, I'm one of those people that's gone back and forth. So David and I met when I was actually a research fellow at the University of Melbourne in his faculty, Architecture, Building and Planning. But here at Centre for Urban Research, I have research interests that have no connecting theme, I think. So some people think it's that it's not obvious, but some of the things that I study are car parking policies, their impact, their history. Uh, I do a lot of urban history. That's something we share with David. I have a book coming out on liquor licensing regulations and their history. I've also done things on planning conflicts ranging from industrial chicken farms to, again, something I've worked on with David, opposition to fast food restaurants. But generally, I mean, my original research, my PhD was around housing, housing markets and modelling and things like that. And just follow my nose, follow my interests and end up still doing car parking at the moment. So but still broadly within the, the planning field. It's planning, yeah. yeah. Planning urban history. Almost and a bit of social planning in there as well, with particularly with the legal licensing component. Yeah, um, although it's sort of, in the end, it's really about regulation and how yeah. they're designed and where they come from. Yeah. And a lot of my work has tended to be quite quantitative, but mm. I'm also really interested in things like how you can quantify, for example, the history of a regulation, where it came from. But yeah, that, that's me broadly, but Dave is quite different. Yeah, what about you, David? Um, I'm just worried about the rabble out on the outside. Can you hear the rabble? It's, I don't yeah, know. You, maybe you should call security. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> students, that's what I meant. Um, look, I, I call myself a historian. I'd call myself an urban historian, perhaps. Um, and um, my teaching and research uh, follow pretty much the same standard track they have for some time now. I always find new things to, uh, to get fascinated by within you know in in little picture and big picture forms within the field of urban history and i i guess if i you know please i hope no one puts a gun to my head but if someone put a gun to my head i would say i'm particularly interested in 20th century australia within that i'm particularly interested in the 1920s so the the interwar period basically i mean partly because also though because that's the the real birth of um, planning as we know it in Australia. So that's when. So there's a lot of ramifications that you can see um, from that time, even you know, 100 years later. Uh, in my teaching, I teach two major subjects in the planning program. Well, the the Masters of Urban Planning at at Melbourne. Um, I teach a, pl- a planning his- theory and history subject, and I also uh, teach an undergraduate history subject and a few other bits and pieces uh, around the place. Uh, for, you know, always in that field of history and social social and cultural history, really, um, as it pertains to uh, the way people live in cities, I guess. And you, both of your institutes have got uh, significant research aspects. What, Liz, what's the RMIT sort of lab, brain lab called? Well, Centre for Urban Research is the urban lab, though we also have so many trendy names that I wouldn't be surprised if it was a lab Oh, there is an innovation lab and we have things called <laughs> enabling capability platforms and you can hear the inflection of sarcasm there. I think while we're all enthusiastic about research, some of us get a bit tired of the constant reinvention of the clusterings and the marketing of that research, but that's an, as an aside. The urban focus of the university um, is often is under this umbrella of urban futures, although that's controversial because some of us do history, so how do we fit into that? And I actually, it's such a big centre that I lose track of what everyone does, but some of the streams include, we have the planning and transport, which I'm part of, and we look at things like commuter patterns and infrastructure provision and um, mode share, things like classic transport things. There's a group here that, that looks at biodiversity planning and how you get the best within the constraints of the land system we have, how you maximise biodiversity in the city. We have uh, critical urban governance, so that's uh, the political side of things. And I'm already, f- there's like seven of them, so it's a pretty big <laughs> sweep. You're doing and well to remember so far. <laughs> it's a, a whole range of urban interests, and I'm always surprised when I when we have the full centre gathering, that the range, oh, there's people that do energy efficiency, design of buildings is another one. Oh, climate change and adaptation. So they're, they're often a little bit like we're not quite urban because they do a lot of disaster resilience kinds of things so that gives a, a sense of what what we do and david what's happening at carlton university with your sorry melbourne universities 
<laughs> in Carlton. Okay, in Parkville. Um, uh, well, look, uh, so much, like too much for me to to mm. put together. And you know, I mean, Elizabeth did a very impressive job there. Um, and I I could you know summon up some broad themes. Um, obviously, we're all very well. well no, sorry, that sounds patronising. They are. There are many many of my colleagues are very interested in resilience, and um, there's one of my colleagues is very is looking a lot at um, bushfire resilience there's these these kinds of things but I've, I actually feel a little bit awkward typifying my colleagues uh, work in a you know sort of like speaking for them in a way which maybe uh, maybe I shouldn't feel awkward but I guess it's it seems um, there's a there's so many things going on and there's so many um, there's so much so much back and forth and uh, everybody's so um, Sort of entrenched in their particular fields that I don't, I don't feel uh, really great talking about it in that, uh, you know, you know, talking about a sweep there. Perhaps the better question is, what's the cutting edge research that you're seeing at the moment? Well, that's hard, I suppose, when you've got to, they've got to pick out certain colleagues and in, yeah. you, know, you know how in, in your respective schools is there is a star superstar? I'd say one of the superstars at RMIT is Libby Porter. Uh, she's working oh, yes. on reconciliation and how you. In, involve like meaningfully involve an indigenous perspective in land use planning and I think she's a superstar in essentially the publication impact but also just the extent of her involvement and activism is, mm. is one example but I, I guess mean, the Libby is the best she's yeah. so great she came and did a guest lecture for us a few mm. a few weeks mm. ago she's so brilliant I guess the reason we ask those questions is we're really keen to try and flesh out what the universities are doing and sort of shine a bit of a light on academia. <laughs> I, I was going to say, Jess, I, after hearing Elizabeth and David, I feel very ignorant about what this great research stuff that is going on mm. in our profession, a couple of kilometres from where I am, and yeah. I know nothing of it. Mm. And, and that, that's one of our topics today is trying mm. to bridge the gap definitely between academia and all the great research coming out of there and the... Uh, the practicing world of planning. And I think, Liz, um, you and Joe Hurley wrote mm. a fantastic article. And actually, I was talking to someone about that this morning before we um, met up with you guys about... Um, you get up so early, I'm impressed. Oh, not usually. <laughs> I had a very early coffee. <laughs> um, but I was talking to someone about that that article. And for those um, listening, it's the title of it is... Um, it people is. Don't not a lot of people, people read, read the stuff. stuff and yeah. the subtitle is uh, Urban Research in Practice in Australia. Yes. Now, I haven't left a third person out of that article. No, the author is myself and Joe, and Joe Hurley. Hurley. Yeah. So that was a fantastic read and I think um, Stephen Rowley actually suggested that as a paper for us to read um, when we interviewed him on Planning Exchange probably over a year ago. Yeah. So I, I suppose it gets mm. back to what's the misconceptions that academia has of the practice, I'll call it the practising world, mm-hmm. um, both in strategic and statu- you know, land use planning. And what, on the flip side, what do you think, how, did, how, did, how does the academic world feel they're thought of by the practising mm. world? Mm. I'd, I'd like to respond to that, the paper that not a lot of people read the stuff because I think that, as well as the community radio, that's the other impetus for me being involved in podcasting has been... I mean, the project that Joe and I actually did originally for the Henry Heller and Trust is that we were tasked with investigating whether we could build a website where practising planners could get research summaries. But in the process, we were interviewing all these planners about how they uh, access research and ultimately our finding was, well, they don't read it at all. So, yeah. And there are a range of access barriers, literal access barriers, so sometimes there's a paywall, but sometimes it's just time and not being able to make that connection. So it's not that you are incapable of making the connection between research and practice, but that middle ground where you interpret research for a particular context or question is this whole task in itself. So from out of, out of that, one of the things I became more interested in was this grey literature stuff. I do a column for planning news, for example, and things like the conversation. And I think things like podcasts sit in the middle. You've got to make, and I'm not saying I don't know, I don't know how to do it. I think it's actually really difficult. But trying to condense and make accessible your research is a first step to bridging that gap because mm. the feedback I got from doing research with practicing planners was that they have a completely different way of approaching information and approaching how they go about their work. And that sometimes it's because the research is, isn't relevant and not all research should be relevant to an applied context, but sometimes it's a miscommunication. So, And I guess as practicing planners, we probably... and. Pete, I'm talking for you as well, but <laughs> you probably have a very well, I'm, I'm a lazy planner, so <laughs> I don't... I, I, yeah, um, I'd, I'd say we probably get 
the most part of our um, knowledge from conferences and other professional develop- development events. But mm. I'd say very rarely would we have involvement from the academic world in those events. Um, I think we're becoming better at it mm-hmm. because I think particularly in the last couple of years there's definitely been more of an emphasis on getting academia involved in those conversations, particularly with um, I think some of the more recent research that's come out of um, both RMIT and Melbourne that perhaps planners are taking not necessarily more seriously, but a, um, a tuning in a bit more. I'd take the flip side, Jess. I don't think that there's any uh, transmission, really, of research papers... You don't go to conferences, though. Well, you know, but in terms of down at VCAT, Mm. I never hear a research paper being brought up to say, well, this is... All we get is seems like accepted wisdom and groupthink and... I think the VCAT world's very different as well. Well, that's the cutting edge. That's Mm. where most planners in the practising land use look at for direction. Definitely. And I know VCAT are starved of good information, new information, rather than just someone saying well, this is appropriate for, you know, because mm. of precedent, precedent. It would be more be better if it was, look, this is the new research on this. Sure, mm. it comes from a left-wing academic think tank, but, um, you know, w- it, it still informs the whole debate. We don't have that. And it's, it should be possible to, to read and acknowledge research and then say, and we're doing this for a different reason. We have values mm. or whatever. What can be frustrating is when an institution or a process makes out like they know everything because they read a, a report that was kind of self, in, you know, didn't look outside their own jurisdiction. There's different, mm. you know, it's, researchers aren't trying to rarely come in and say that you should base all your actions on research. It's but just Liz, trying to communicate mm. a bit more. You're be aware. Mm. One of your latest podcasts was about car parking rates in oh, apartment yeah. buildings. That's a classic now, example of where VCAT is just, on another planet. Well, exactly, mm. but your research, you know, that, that fellow's research, the traffic Donald engineer. Oh, uh, D- Chris DeGruder? Yes, yep. and what he found, what was actually happening on the ground, I haven't heard that before in, in such a in detailed way. So, reference to interview with Chris DeGruder on car parking rates and um, it was actually on travel plans, but that's maybe a division. So, yeah, and in car parking area, which is one of my research focus areas, it's been very frustrating because there is so little research out there. It's not something that when you make decisions around how much power do you need, it's usually based on, it seems to me to be largely anecdotal. So, yeah. And it affects hundreds of millions of dollars of investment in just this city. David, do you want to respond? Not to car parking, I'm sure. I really <laughs> don't want to respond to car parking. Um, I have to reel back to the, to the initial question and I think that, um, you know, in some ways I think it's difficult for me with my history hat on, which is the hat that I almost always wear, to sort of start muscling into conversations about the present, despite what I said about the, um, you know, specialising in the 1920s and, and seeing precedents for so many things today being established then, I I still feel like history ends up looking like a, a bit of entertainment on the side and despite what, you know, I'm always telling students every day, I hope none of them are listening, I'm always telling students that, you know, that I'll sore of um you know if you don't pay attention to the mistakes of the past you're condemned to repeat them i even the first thing that i did when i set up the undergraduate and the postgraduate courses this year was i linked them to an onion article about historians it's some funny thing about um you know historians declare that um the way to to stop making mistakes is to pay attention to the past and there's all these quotes from um, foolish Americans saying, you know, so I don't quite get it, but it seems that, you know, we look at what happened before and then if we don't do the bad things, then, you know, more bad things don't happen. Anyway, um, I, I actually feel a little bit separated from that from that whole but conversation, David, the, the partly because of the way people respond to mm. history. They find it sort of, you know, as I say, a bit of, a, a bit of entertainment. Curiosity. Oh, yeah, curiosity, yeah. exactly. I'd but like to... to Sorry, interrupt you, Peter, but I've tried to make history relevant even in the parking space again that I did a historical piece where I looked at where our parking policies came from and I felt that was, you know, that's an example of where you can make that connection to history that we in 
brought them over for a particular reason from a particular context from the US and mm. what does that you know that's a where history well, this can is, be useful. This is true. I mean I guess if I was if I was a little more um you know if I wanted to run through the the halls of the present day profession, you know, with my history cutlass and uh make everyone listen pay proper attention, I could probably make a really good case, but um uh, twenty four hours in the day. I I, f- I think Jess, that history is absolutely essential and there seems to be not much collective knowledge within the planning world of the cycles that planning tends to go through. Of course there there is not yes and and it is fascinating because as you say there's not much knowledge of what happened in the 90s now Mm. (laughs) and and then you go back to the 80s and and you know and I find it it's like you're at school if you've got a good teacher you're engaged and it's presented a good way I think Yes. So I, yes. we we need more, much more of that. I think. Mm. Look, I think that I mean I see a lot of our students like we prepare our students for you know professional practice, of course, and I really always try to hammer home this idea that you know you you've got to think a little bit, you know, stick your head a little bit above the pack and get a bigger picture, fit, you know, um, conception of how things are working, not just in terms of the of a cycle, but also just in terms of how you conceive your your job and your profession and your role in the community and so on and so forth. Um, with some of them, uh, you know, with the best students, it sticks uh, and they can actually gain a bit of um, uh, objectivity, which mm. I think is, a is the, you know, that's wonderful when that happens. Mm. And with a lot of students, they're just like, you know, whatever, I just want a job, you know, I just want to Will work. this be on the exam? Will this be on the exam, mm. yeah. And it is, ha-ha. But, but you know, <laughs> just, just, just on the history for just one more moment, you know, like housing alternatives, like... There's yeah. Winter Park. There's all yeah. that cluster housing. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, all the merchant building stuff that's right. in the 70s. Now, that, there's a lot to be learned from that, but, you know, you, you just get blanks. You know, no no one knows about that stuff anymore. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. They don't. Sorry. That's they do if they come to m- and, and attend my, do my courses. Yes. Can I ask you guys a question? Of course. Of course. Well, you have to say yes now. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what degree did you do and... And do you ever draw on that university training still, or how do you come back to an university? Yes, I'm older than you. I did a Bachelor of Applied Science at RMIT in Grad Dip. In, uh, and yes, uh, second year I discovered Australian literature, which was great. And uh, look, I, the, my, my course was very, I won't say easy, but they were very tolerant. And uh, so that I could enjoy being a student, but I don't remember anything from that time except... But I discovered Australian literature. So, <laughs> so that's, a, that's the kind of story I like to hear. <laughs> Jess, your... um, so similarly, I did the applied science degree at RMIT um, with the specialisation in planning. And then I actually also recently just completed a master's at Deakin in public health. Really? So, yeah. So I've sort of taken a slightly different tack, I guess, to um, what other people have done. So that's, I guess, sort of led me more into um, a social planning lens that I now apply to work um, and also strategic planning so I'm sort of doing less of that statutory planning work now and moving more into the broader higher level analysis and strategy which is really good so I think um, probably uh, more obviously I think just because of time obviously the public health course for me is probably a little bit more relevant now but Mm -hmm. certainly the broader themes from the applied science degree were are still things that I definitely use today, particularly in strategic planning. In your day-to-day work, what kind of information sources do you typically, like how would you make a decision or write a report? See, most of my stuff probably comes from conferences and professional development events through Planning Institute and mm-hmm. um, VPLA and those sorts of organisations. So that's probably the most part. However, I do do some tutoring at RMIT as well. That's so right, you across both worlds a bit. Yeah, so I think working with um, the lovely Stephen Rowley, he's um, probably pushed me more into looking at academia these days um, just because, you know, it, there's some really interesting stuff coming out of that that he often flicks to me. So I probably get a little bit more, of, um, a little bit more exposure to that world than perhaps other people do. Um, however, saying that as well, I think we've got, you know, probably five or six students that work with us at, at Tract, and um, they're really good at forwarding on interesting articles and interesting research that they're finding and or that they're mm-hmm. working on. So, yeah, I'm probably a slightly different um, kettle of fish compared to other planners. 
Yeah, I look at my what my contemporaries are doing. I mean, all artists steal all the time. So, mm. you know, I'm always looking about what they're doing. Clients give me information. I'll, and just general reading. But I, uh, you know, just I might read an article about something or I might see something or, pref- uh, you know, like you know, whatever the industry I'm working in, just mm. reading stuff from that. And podcasts, obviously, are, are a great podcasts source great. of information. Yeah. And I think, um, I think you made mention of this before, Liz, but, you know, um, blogs such as The Conversation and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's a, there's well, a whole well, number well, of them. I, but I, I listen to Start the Week from BBC4 and I get great ideas from that, even though they're not related specifically to what I'm doing, but they yeah. sort of trigger mm-hmm. these thought mm-hmm. processes. But yeah. 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 I Which think I think we is have, important. We have, a, we have a similar relationship to those BBC yeah. shows. Yeah. Um, Thinking aloud, you, you, you listen to, to thinking, thinking aloud. Thinking aloud, aloud. And thinking aloud's great. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. in our time, in our time, yeah, time's yeah. great. Melbourne, yeah. Whoa, yeah. yeah. I listened to it last night, so you know, yeah. it's just. Which one was that? The Welsh epic one. That was about the uh, Highland clearances. I oh, that was wow. a good one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was in in a abstract way was qu- quite relevant to planning. I'm really interested in land tenure and stuff. Yeah. But yeah. the Welsh epic one was not relevant to planning. No, it wasn't. So <laughs> just, but it was brilliant. <laughs> just, just pulling it back. So there's a question here that you know, what do you do all day? Yeah. And uh, what are you know, what are the day to day metrics that define your work? Do, should we go clockwise? Well, is that me, clockwise? Yeah, yes. I'm so I'm such an academic. I'm questioning the subjectivity of clockwise. Or, anyway, uh, yeah, I thought that was, I put that question in because I was. It's really interesting to contrast how people's professional lives are defined and the things that drive you. And in the case of the university, so I don't have a tenured position. I have a research fellowship, which uh, is a hard thing to get, but they're also really short-lived. And within the academic world, you have the teaching part and you have the research part you're usually judged by your peer-reviewed academic output so how many publications do you have what quality are they and that's the thing that will get you a job it will get you a research grant that will get you promoted and to some extent you're also judged on how much teaching you take on and your uh, students feedback but I don't do much teaching I do a lot of guest lectures and things like that and within that my the drive is get a research grant which is this horrible process where you spend three months talking about what you're going to do if you give me some money and then you don't get it and then you get bitter. So Sounds like a fee proposal. <laughs> yeah. and that's Sounds that's, like life, actually. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the sort of from the higher up levels the, of the university, the things that make that get them the, the ability to um, speak of their research excellence, they're talking about Category 1 funding and they're talking about peer-reviewed outputs. And they're starting to put some emphasis on what they call impact and that's um, things like the real world I guess do you, do you have an impact in the media do you have an impact in policy and practice or in the professions but that's an emerging kind that, of that area. That could be a dangerous thing I'm yeah, just a I little agree. bit nervous about mm. that I think a lot of us are. So Show ponies and uh, dumbing stuff down and yep. allying yourself with business I mean yeah. that, 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 that can compromise you I imagine. Mm-hmm. And definitely agree like there's this tension between wanting to make your research relevant and engage and, and get a wider audience and then the fact that if you incentivize that, if you become judged by your impact, then, well, people will do shady things to do it and it won't be about the quality of the engagement. It'll be about, well, you know, I need a promotion because I published, you know, three articles in, in The Australian or something like that. And... There's always that tension. And then in the background of that is the fact that the university sector is incredibly casualised. That's something the union's trying to take up but doesn't show any signs of slowing. Over 50% of the teaching in universities is done by casual staff. And casual means not even fixed-term contract. It's like they work semester by semester. And the job security thing is becoming more and more polarised. So you have the tenured academic staff and the huge army of casualised academic staff that they're sole incentive is to try and get job security usually how do you get it you get it by doing peer-reviewed publications and getting a research grant why would you spend your time trying to engage more broadly when you're just trying to keep your head above water and i'm somewhere on the top of that pile and really aware of that but that's the kind of drivers of my life and trying to i'm a little bit frightened of the teaching world because i hear so many of my colleagues and David, I'll throw to you on this one. Just the sheer workload involved in administering a teaching position.
Yeah. Workload, the workload in teaching is, it, I mean, I actually think, you know, that, uh, that cliche about um, primary and secondary teachers, you know, will only teach six hours a day, that kind of stuff, or they only work mm. six hours a day, which is, um, you know, categorically and obviously untrue if you think about it for a second. Um, having a, a big teaching load is, I mean, I'm in two minds about my own teaching load because I have, um, and, and this, is, this goes to a, a kind of a wider issue, which um, I often end up, and it also uh, goes to your, the thing that you were talking about, Elizabeth, with the, the casual teaching as well, which is that it's, you know, teaching it uh, at, even at a tertiary level is a kind of, you know, in that it's a, it's a caring profession in the, you know, a, like a lot of, you know, I guess in some ways it's not as um, life and death as, as nursing or whatever, but it's, uh, or social work, but it's a, um, it's nevertheless, it's something that we are, we're, we're, we're drawn along by the fact that we really um, care about our students and their welfare uh, and about their intellectual development. And we also uh, care about our own, um, you, know, uh, you know, intellectual field and we really want to see that advanced. And that's, that's where I feel and I'm particularly in that, uh, in that area where I am I'm strongly advocating for not just history per se, but, you know, that kind of... Um, you know the study of of culture and society within in uh, the planning program, and I always want to make sure that that's that has a strong presence, and uh, because of that, I um, I want to make sure that I have a, a strong presence as a you know in teaching in in my um, faculty. So on that front, you know, quite apart from the fact that teaching itself is a you know it's a big thing, it's a very rewarding thing though. Which I keep trying to tell you, Elizabeth, there is actually an upside. Yeah, I did I, a lecture yesterday and I was really r- reminded of that positive side. You know, all these inquisitive faces and questions and people that are sort of angered by your lecture. And that's Yeah, really that's cool. Good. Isn't, that, isn't that great <laughs> when that happens? Um, but, you know, we're presently in week 11 of semester one. And, um, you know, I'm, if somebody came to me and said, hey, guess what? We've added a week 13 to, uh, to the 12 <laughs> week. I would just go, okay. I'm going to Peru. I'm not going to – I can't – it It is really, really – it is really gruelling and it's really tough. And it's a lot of strain. You know, I mean, a lot of people depend on you and in various ways you, you know, you either satisfy that dependency or you let them down in some way. You know, it is it is actually – it's quite psychologically draining, I think, in, in lots of ways as well as, as just being um, a, a time – uh, you know, I don't want to say it's not. It's not a waste of time, but it's it, time intensive. Lot, time intensive, yeah. exactly. That's right. Is yes, it hard coming up with new content? Don't have to. Don't need to. <laughs> no. Um. Yeah. No. It's not hard actually. That's that's actually one of the one of the best things about it is you is revising every mm. yeah, and that's the, that's the stuff I look forward to. It's like oh great, there's you know half of this lecture is new stuff or there's mm. a new angle on the new spin on this. I've been really lucky this year in my postgraduate course. I have a a coordinator. Um, a sort of a co-coordinator uh, has been uh, some a new member of staff in the faculty, Catherine Davidson, who's come from the University of uh, uh, South Australia. Uh, no, from Flinders. Flinders. Yes, thank you. Um, and um, she's been great. So she's she's that's sort of been an injection of you know uh, new ideas and mm. and uh, new ways of thinking about the the course. So that's you know and new content. So that that's always wonderful when that happens. And the the tutors are also, you know, we we just have a we have a great pool of um, tutors who are largely PhD students, not not all of them or um, perhaps recently completed PhD students, uh, and they are um, they're always excellent with, you know, great new ideas and and so on. So that's that's very refreshing as well. What about you guys? What do you what are the kind of stresses or uh, in incentives you have in your work and what do you largely spend your time doing? And I always wonder when I ask people in sort of the private sector about this, they have to kind of say, oh, I you know, can't say. I cannot public. divulge <laughs> at this point. <laughs> oh, it's pretty simple. It's, you know, it's the financial return. It's the client relations. It's keeping yourself mentally active. I mean, you know, I consider what I do is basically like a pilot and you know, trying to get ships through treacherous you know waters sometimes you do <laughs> lose ships but it, it's it's really you know that you motivate development applications or lots yeah. lots mm-hmm. and so uh, but I try to maintain good relations with everyone I deal with because if you don't it's a small profession it'll bite you on the bum at some stage but also it's much easier to be nicer to people and then better to you even if you're opposing but 
And also another analogy is like riding shotgun, you know, on, the, on a stagecoach, just trying to get through some, in some situations. Mm. Mm. And also learn as well and try and, you know, do new things in your work. Jess? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think for me, um, probably one of the biggest motivation is um, is this project outcomes. So, you know, after spending a year or two on one project and actually seeing something come to fruition oh, is... Sorry, Jess, I should have included that. Too. <laughs> I was going to prompt no. you. You get to actually see something. Happen. Yeah. yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, a lot of the time you also don't see anything because, you know, it takes a long time for things to actually happen. Um, but I think particularly with big strategic projects and... Um, uh, yeah, strategic planning. I guess it's really rewarding to actually see some of some of the things that you've been involved with um, actually happen and happen mm. on the ground. So, um, yeah, I think probably for me as well, the other major component is just industry contribution and just trying to give back a little bit. And you know, by doing the podcast and trying to keep abreast of what's happening in the industry and um, and hopefully starting some conversations around mm. key issues that are happening in our industry. Yeah, excuse that beeping noise. I don't know what that is. What is that? It's the rabble <laughs> again, I think. They've, uh, they've brought some vehicles. Someone's around. reversing something. Yeah. So the uh, the last academic paper you read? For me? Uh, oh, that was sort of... We can all answer that. What's the last one I read? was a paper about the escalation of car ownership in East Germany after reunification because I'm writing about um, car parking policies in Germany. Oh, wow. And you, David? The last one I read that I remember, I don't actually, it was a, it was a bunch of um, papers. I was trying to find a good paper about, um, you'll love this, um, the n- plans for new cities in China in the 1950s. <laughs> and uh, guess what? There's nothing. Well, nothing in English anyway. And um, I think that it's, apparently there was quite a bit of uh, work done on that kind of stuff, even though the Chinese government had, had no great interest in uh, new cities but they were of course you know reorganizing the entire nation to be an industrial mm-hmm. um, competitor so um, nevertheless the you know I don't I don't see anybody currently working in that in that field but that's what I was um, you know just sort of scanning scanning stuff and some things were quite interesting but of course most most articles are about new t- new cities in China in now. you know 2010 or mm. you know the side 2010s. question to you David have you ever come across I don't know how to pronounce it but I've been reading this book about uh, domestication of foxes this experiment they've been having in Siberia for 60 70 years and this was all based at a you, they made a new city just for academics in Russia called Akademogorok. <laughs> Really? Yeah. When are we going to have one of those? Well, it so sounded, and it sounded like, you know, sort of heaven, but sort of hell. Hell. It, <laughs> Siberia as well. But. Yeah, yeah. So it's like a kind of a, a Silicon Valley for... Yeah, yeah scientists. Um, yeah, and, and their foxes and their domesticated foxes. That's a range of other... Yeah, so they have the... what Anyway, it's a side thing. So that was a new city. It might be worth looking at. Beautiful. Into. Okay, that's great. And, and it'd probably be the best city ever because intelligent people would have... Uh, they make the best neighbours, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm fearful to ask that question to you guys. Do you have one? Well, I can, I can cheat here because I actually oh, read your article this morning. <laughs> <laughs> people don't read the stuff except for me. <laughs> I know that, that I feel like there's a level of um, punishment for me. That's definitely the paper I wrote that people read the most. And so it's <laughs> that's famous. That's it's a famous becomes, paper, isn't it? It becomes wrong every time someone reads it. So it's I had a student um, quote that to us in a lecture earlier oh, yeah. this year. Yeah, yeah. famous. It was yeah. interesting. <laughs> and it is. I'm really happy that people read it and that it's, it's cited and things, and it's part of teaching as well. But there is this irony to it that of all of all the papers I've spent time on, that was the least. Like it had the least. Um, hard work go into it. It was a fun project to do. It didn't involve millions of records and analysis and maps and, you know, number crunching or anything like that. It was just interviews and pretty interesting. So I don't know what lesson to take from that. We might put a link to um, that article on our website as well just because we have spoken about it a bit today. So Mm. It might be paywalled, of course. Is it or not? We can uh, make it available. We'll have a look. Yeah, I I come across... uh, 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 a study uh, that in the UK where there's this um, uh, geographer or something and they're doing studies, they've set up a website called Scenic or Not. Oh, right? So what they do is they put photos up all the time and people rate them. How, how attractive is this setting? Well, really? It could be urban, it could be semi-urban, you know, rural. Some of them are you know, really cruddy. 
others are, you know, ye old England, and people, you rate them. And all that goes into uh, artificial AI. So it's teaching machines what is an attractive place. And then it can generate an artificial attractive place? Is that well, the That's right. And, and one of the early questions we were asking Jess and I were, how soon until robots replace planners? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of planning work is robotic, you know, process. And a lot of the, there's not much discretion for planners at councils to make mm-hmm. an actual judgment on things because their policies push them one way or another. So, and <coughs> Jess has put up, indulge me in this, but, uh, I, you know, we'd like to interview that person about, you know, how the machine learning is going to determine what are attractive places. And that, that's mm-hmm. pretty spooky, I think. Mm. But anyway. Yeah, well, we've, I've got a few robots in my lectures now coming enrolled in the course. Uh-huh. We, we had decided to let them in a couple of years ago. It was quite contentious, but they are very good students. Well, they're good Italian yeah, they're, they're not good. great uh, independent thinkers. No, that's fine. That leads us to our next question is, how do you see technology impacting city planning? Uh, are you techno-optimists or resigned to tech dystopias? Um, one area of technology that I'm really positive about and yeah, have, have a, a utopian outlook on is uh, the use of, in, in the history world, the digitisation of historical records. And, I mean, there's an element to which it's dangerous as well, but things like Trove, the National Library of Australia's um, archive that's putting digitised newspapers but also books, re- records um, and so on in a way that you can connect in new ways. So I find that's uh, a pretty exciting world of technology and, and it brings together the best of both and thinking about something like Trove is that's designed in a really good way it's got a lot of crowdsourcing element to it so that it's not too cumbersome or inflexible so that's one positive area that I think of I think about technology a bit more in terms of things like the car parking area so I'm kind of frustrated by there's a disconnect between the possibilities so I hear the possibilities that autonomous vehicles or so on will make car parking we won't need as much of it and there'll be a It'll be smart parking and things like that. I think there's an element where I think, oh, that sounds really good. And then I'm down here on the ground where there's almost zero data on car parking. The, even the leap you'd have to make to get it to be something you could track or transform is so high that I'm probably more worried about our inability to deal with day-to-day problems now than with the advent of technology. So mixed, mixed answer. Could be good, but we can't seem to get our heads around how to manage... Some, some simple technology now and also I guess the car is looms in that so the impact of the the traditional personal car on cities has been so huge positive and negative and transformative and planners in a lot of ways were complicit in uh, facilitating that technology not just making it part of the city but really dominating the city and I'm, I'm kind of trepidatious that we might make the same mistakes again. Uh, technology to me exactly what you said like digitizing um, of materials so the accessibility of um, well particularly for my interests historical materials uh, and as you said it was a it's a it, there's a downside to it because it's it's mediated and there are there's a lot of stuff that you know is therefore excluded from that uh, and we all feel like we've certainly in the last 15 years let's say when I started my PhD, which was admittedly, uh, well, that was two, 1996, um, so that is quite a long time ago. But you know, I was I was basically doing newspaper research, you know, in hard copy and just trawling through stuff. And now, of course, you can just search stuff so easily and get a, a big, impressive range of stuff. But that's not necessarily the whole story, and it. And it looks like it is. So that's that's a problem, and I'm sure that can be extrapolated in all kinds of ways um, to to the availability of materials. You, it, there's so much stuff available that it looks like you've got a. I mean, you do have a big picture, but it's clearly not the whole canvas. So there's there's that, and um, I guess that's an upside and and a downside for the kind of work that I do. That's the other things. Are, I mean, in terms of teaching, I think a lot about. Uh, technology. I know that uh, you know it's you know I'm just I'm running behind students in terms of their capacity mm. to engage with um, you know I guess for want of a better term IT you know whatever you want to call it because I don't want to say just the just the internet um, but so it's difficult to stay ahead of that well it's impossible to stay ahead of that game I think in some ways 
Um, and there's all kinds of issues that come up from that. One of the big issues, and I'm talking again about teaching, while I'm talking about assessment, is the issue of plagiarism, um, which is endemic and incredibly frustrating. And it is just, you know, some people would be surprised to hear possibly listening to this that, you know, there are students who will spend much more time trying to figure out a way to steal um, ideas and work and writing from somewhere um, than they will and actually, you know, than they would if they actually sat down and did the freaking work in the first place. But um, so there's there's those kinds of things which, you know, does speak to the, the way that, that we engage, uh, you know, with students but also uh, I guess with each other in, in, in various senses. Um, there's a whole – there's so many issues around that that it's um, – that's, a, that's an extra five-part podcast series. But, you know, those are the things that, that bug me about uh, technology is, you know, that there's – I think to sum up, it looks like it's liberating, but it actually is setting up a whole lot of uh, further issues that are, you know, all the more dangerous in a way because they're not immediately obvious. Jess, optimist or dystopia? Minority Report, Blade Op- Runner? Optimist. I um I was lucky enough to experience the RAC uh, trial of the driverless bus mm-hmm. over in Perth last week, which is um, part of the PIA Congress, which was really interesting. Um, Were you a passenger? I was. Fantastic. I had to sign my life away to get on it. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's part of <laughs> enhancing the appeal of a driverless bus is that you could also pretend to be the driver, like you'd sit <laughs> in the seat and have kids being like, meep, meep, and... <laughs> Well, it was it was just funny, I think, because um, Peter and I have spoken so much about driverless vehicles on this podcast, and it was just really interesting to actually be in one and actually see how it communicates with other. Well, actually, it probably doesn't really communicate with vehicles yet. But interestingly, you know, they were saying how um, there's going to be hundreds of laws, regulations that need to be changed in order for that to actually occur. And even I think the, the bus that they've got um, on this trial came over from France and... Um, by itself. By itself, yeah, autonomously. And um, it got stuck in customs because it wasn't actually a vehicle. It can't be classed as a motor vehicle because it, it doesn't, doesn't have, have a steering, steering wheel. wheel. Mm. Um, so, you know, someone had to make a phone call to customs to try and get them to actually release this bus from, mm. from its holding cell mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for it to actually participate in this trial. So I think there's still a really long way to go, obviously, but I think it's a really exciting and interesting area. I'm confident that soon you'll be able to look at a building and you'll know whatever you want to know about that building. Mm. Um, I'm really worried about surveillance also mm-hmm. and human right and human rights. I'm very worried about um, you know being uh, being watched and also monitored. What are you doing? Why why well, are you so worried? That's for me to know, Jess. But uh, no, but it's You're just not doing anything wrong. Yeah, exactly, you've got nothing exactly, to fear. exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I just I just worry about that Big Brother sort of whole thing and uh, a lot of dumbing down. People will be so overloaded with information mm. that they will choose the mm. easy option. That's a good point. And and I think we need to very be very vigilant about a lot of what we're told about big data. Liz, you were saying that you know we could make horrendous decisions by leaping. Oh, this is the this is the right way. Oh, only that rabble is opposed to it. Let's ignore them. Don't mm-hmm. they want progress? You know, we need to do this because we're growing so quickly. I think we really need a lot more contested ideas, and I think technology is going to help that. Um, in terms of planning firms, I think that planning firms are going to gear up with better AI. I think they're going to have little black boxes which enable their workers to have the best understanding of what the issue is. And at the moment, we're living in an analogue world in planning profession, I think. And I just think that that digital embrace is just going to hopefully create a lot better answers. So I'm a bit in between. I'm worried about some things, but I think this has got great capacity if we have like that planning commons where there's decent rules and people can have their say. So what are we moving on to? Students. Uh, students. 
they're old before their time. Is that is that fair? One thing I would say is is that students, in my perception, do seem to work a lot more now. So it is harder. It's more. It's just a reflection, I guess, of trends in Melbourne generally. But it is harder to live independently. To the uh, pressure to earn money just to pay rent is quite high. So a lot of students seem to work part time, and that does it can help with your studies in the sense that you're making the connections and and um, drawing on applied and and academic content, but it also means they're often really time poor. But Matt might just be the students that I work with, and David was saying before that there's a, a really wide range. You've got the fully coddled student through to the um, working full-time and studying um, and balancing a work life and family life as well so certainly it's no longer I have this dim memory of my older brother who's eight years older than me and when he was at college at Melbourne University just this sense that everyone he knew just sat around drinking beer and playing rugby <laughs> and if they didn't live in the residential college they lived in a share house in Carlton that cost like $30 a week <laughs> and one day they'd get a job and that kind of thing just seems so strange to me now. I don't mm. think that's a reality for any students now. I mm. think drunk rugby still goes on. Right. Mm. They're just not doing planning maybe. <laughs> no, maybe not. No. <laughs> so just a final question. How do you think university education is preparing planners for practice? And should it? And should it? And should it? I put that in there because you can, um, you can make an argument that you don't have to study things just for their applied content certainly planning's maybe not the best example because in terms of fields of pure research it's not a good it's it's almost inherently concerned with uh, affecting not entirely but affecting practice in real life but you can just do research for its own purpose but certainly I'm hearing I think things are changing um, so with my interview with Michael Buxton last week for example he said he had some regrets about the content that um, they were offering at RMIT over the last few decades that maybe it wasn't preparing students for the kind of political realities that they were going to be dealing with or facing in in planning practice and that the turnover uh, burnout depending on what you want to call it is quite high or has been so what seemed to have been happening is that you'd come to university study how bad things are how great they should be and you're going to go out there and um, make the right decision and then you go out there and you're working at a planning counter and having people yell at you mm. and you have no idea how to communicate or how to make a decision within that context and quite stressful I know John Jackson here he's also recently retired did a lot of work on the stresses of people that work in planning practice that they you know there's a lot of anger directed at you because you can't please everyone and then you just go go do another job but things are changing in the sense that we're trying at the universities to make that connection I think it's coming from practice and it's coming from the universities to um better equipped planners for connecting research in practice. And that's an, I'm going to use a long word, iterative process where you see what works and, and maybe learn from that. Um, and that's probably more the field of, of the teaching staff here. But I think there's some good signs. And I know thinking of my own education, I studied planning as well. And I worked for a, um, a developer for a couple of years. It was fascinating, but I just thought it was terrifying as well. And the main lesson I got out of it was that I wanted to not be a planner in real life and I wanted to go and do something with with numbers or something so that's another a skill just as an aside I still think that the both the planning courses I've been involved in don't offer enough quantitative training for for planners you need to be numerate and you need mm -hmm. to know how to use statistics and and I mean not it's not everyone's cup of tea but those basic skills otherwise you're going to be outwitted by people that sort of throw some numbers at you and then you go, oh, yeah, it sounded like that made the house really expensive. David? With, okay, once again, um, just I, I guess I need to uh, put in the caveat that I'm not a planner, I never have been. I probably never will be. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that I'm the only person in the planning program now that um, has never worked as a planner, but I think that, I'm in the planning program at University of Melbourne, um, but I... There might be at least one other person now who um, has only ever been a planning academic. Uh, and so, you know, my knowledge of the profession is sort of, um, you know, by osmosis. Uh, our ideas for our students is that we give them 
um, a, a range of tools that equip them to, you know, to, you know, this is probably the kind of rhetoric that a lot of a lot of universities use. But you know, I think we we hold to it fairly firmly that we we want to skill we want to skill them up, and in a way, not just skill them up for planning per se, but you know, for uh, life. Uh, I like I, I want a great sort of um, bit of rhetoric that my father conveyed to me when um, the poor man was suffering my attempts to learn to drive. Um, you know that he he said something like, "You getting your license is you know really the first the first step in learning to drive, and then you go and learn to drive." Um, I might even, for my sins, have conveyed that uh, to students at certain times. But I even on Tuesday morning when I was explaining to the poor little things why they needed to do an exam I was sort of saying you know these are the things that we we really want you to engage with ideas we're interested in your your take on ideas you can't you know um, in a way you can't get it wrong um, in the sense that of course there are you know if you use spurious information and 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 so on in your in your argument then that's not really an argument but you can't you know your ideas can't be wrong and you've you've got to um, uh, you've got to learn to you know, I guess in some ways to have the courage of your own convictions and have a basis for those convictions and so on. All of that kind of stuff, which, you know, I think that probably speaks more to my own um, arts education background at the University of Sydney. But it's, um, you know, it's not a it's not a completely uncommon uh, approach to take and I'm, I'm pretty wedded to it. I think that, um, you know, in a way you look at them, they're often, particularly the undergrads, they're, they're just kids i mean they really are you know i accidentally sometimes call them kids instead of students but when you think about it that's what they often mm-hmm. are and you know I, I think back to myself at that age and how infinitesimal my understanding of the world was mm-hmm. and i think giving them some kind of way to access their own agency is um god if i if i get you know one percent towards that i feel very very happy uh, and that would be true, you know, of any student really. But uh, in this instance, uh, I think it's really important that planning students have that kind of understanding of the changes that they can make. Jess, you deal with a lot of graduates. Um, uh, is, is the question is, how do you think university education is preparing plans for practice and, and should it? I guess I probably take the um, the view that, and I think Liz touched on this, is that university does provide that framework for students moving into the workplace. I think um, I'd be cautious about, you know, cutting out things like the history and, you know, we've spoken a lot about that in this podcast, just to focus on how do you how do you assess the planning permit application, for example. I think the value in, in university education is getting that broader, high-level, historic view um, so I, I see a lot of value in that, but then equally, I know that a lot of students that I've taught, um, their feedback is, is always, you know, we, ne- we want to know how to assess a planning permit application or a DA for those in other states. Um, so, yeah, I'm probably sit on the fence with that one, unfortunately. Do you think it should prepare? Yes and no. Mm. I, think, I think there's elements of planning that you can teach and then there's just so much of it that can be learnt on the job because I think the other point to make is that planning is such a broad profession that you can't teach every single component of it it's it's too broad for that unfortunately I don't know whether uni education is preparing students should it yes it should but how how you mean what you mean by that I don't want them to coming out knowing how to fill out a planning application exactly. form. Uh, you know, I don't and, want them and what type of planners are you preparing? I, I, I want you know, f- you know, f- open thinking, free thinking. Mm. One thing I would say is that a lot of graduates and, and young planners are very jaundiced against development, and they seem to want to be regulators, not create, not on the side of creators. Mm. Now maybe that's something to do with the young wanting to be sort of you know black shirts or something. I don't know, but it's it's. I just wish they had look. Everything we look around was created by developers, essentially. Some of it bad, some of it good. Let's let's steer those developers into and other allied professions to making good good things. Mm. If I could use an example from history, uh, I was talking to students on Tuesday about uh, the development of the Queen Victoria Market site and how, of course, you know, just recently there's been, a, I guess, uh, the the anti-development uh, faction there has won. 
at least for the moment, uh, against the, the council on those development plans. But I went back through to when that site was a cemetery and people were, you know, 20,000 signatures were collected to prevent that cemetery becoming a market. So, you know, people were really the, against that, that mm-hmm. uh, ch- you know, the old Pioneer Cemetery. We, ca- we can't um, build over our, you know, our four, four bears' graves. Creeper, creepy, but it is a bit creepy. It's, it's creepy, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, and then from that, then it became a market, and then there was the move to change the market, uh, to get rid of the wholesale component of the market out to Footscray Road, and there was a mm. big, you know, there's a whole lot of um, campaigning against that. There was a campaign uh, against the um, the state government's uh, ambition to effectively demolish the whole market site. It's great a, all these contested yeah. things. Yeah. We've mm. got an alternative history of Melbourne that's yeah. not known. Yeah. And I think that what we're doing today is what our forebearers did, mm. which is great. Well, this this is the end of PX38. Thank you very much, Elizabeth Taylor and David Nichols, uh, for this wonderful uh, with our cousins, our uh, <laughs> podcast cousins. <laughs> and uh, thanks again, Jess. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much. <laughs>